I want to read to you another passage which comes from the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is one of the biographers of Jesus, or four, wrote the four Gospels. And uh, this was probably the first or second that was written, depending on um, different opinions there. But he wrote it mainly to, to a Jewish audience to convince them, to persuade them of who Jesus is, who he was, of his claims. And this is how he opens his account. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and and, uh, Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obad by Ruth, and Obad the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam by the father of Abijah. And it continues on, I want to jump down. He says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I think I deserve a round of applause for that one. Thank you. Um, I know what you're, you're thinking. You're asking a question, why on, earth did, um, why on earth did you just read us a genealogy? Which is about as exciting as listening to the phone book, isn't it? And um, I, I, think it's, I think it's a valid question. There are no shepherds, no angels, no stable, none of the things that you associate with Christmas. And, uh, and yet, the real question is, why did Matthew choose to open his gospel with this account at all? And I think that's a... It's a massively important question. And I think that he must have felt, as I, as I feel, that in here are um, truths and, and ideas that you cannot understand the Christmas event without understanding the backstory, without understanding what led to it and the proofs for why Jesus is who he said he is. And I want to I just give you, at the outset, just a couple of reasons why I think he starts his gospel this way. And you'll begin to see the relevance of what we're talking about. The first is that it's there to prove the identity of this long-awaited king, this long-awaited Messiah. Now, I was, um, I was remembering, I've read, um, years ago, read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and more recently watched um, the movies at least twice. And you remember how in the first film, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's this figure kind of lurking in the background whose name is Strider. Um, his, give, his real name is Aragorn, but he goes by this given name of Strider. He's a ranger. He's a kind of shadowy figure lurking in the background. No one really knows who he is. And at one point in the story, Gandalf writes a letter to Frodo in which he recites a poem which had been written by Bilbo Baggins. And it goes like this. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. And what he's doing, he's hinting at this idea that not everything is as it seems. And really it's about this man, this man Strider. It's much later in the story when Aragorn, his real name, he reveals himself to the riders of Rohan. And he does so by 
recounting his genealogy. He says, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn. I'm called Elisar the Elfstone, Dunadan, the heir of Isildur, Elendil, son of Gondor. Here is a sword that was broken and is forged again. And that's a beautiful moment in the story. Suddenly the expectations of the prophecies, along with his rightful claim to being heir of Isildur, means that this man, he kind of emerges out of the fog as this Messiah figure, as this savior, this new king who had been long awaited and expected. In the same way, when you're reading the early chapters of Matthew's gospel, he keeps pulling on ancient prophecies as well as this sort of genealogy of Jesus to show you this man is the real deal. Here he is. Take note. That's one reason. But here's the other reason. This is the one I'm more interested in this evening. I think the reason... Why he, one of the reasons why he recites this genealogy in the way he, that he does is he wants us to think about the scandal of the birth of the Christ. And the reason why I say that is because there's something very odd going on in, this, in these verses that we read. He mentions five women, which was an unusual thing to do in and of itself because ordinarily the genealogies just listed the male line. And the reason he does so is because he's drawing attention to these women. And all five of them, from a Jewish perspective, were shrouded in scandal. All five of them had these scandalous stories that were attached to them, which is an unusual thing for him to do. Let me just quickly run through them for you so you understand what I'm talking about here. The first one is Tamar. Tamar is famous in the Bible for having, uh, well, her husband died. And under the ancient laws, she was entitled to marry the younger brother so that she could continue the family line. But the father, whose name is Judah, refuses to give the younger brother to Tamar. So what does she do? She poses as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face and hides her identity, seduces her father-in-law, Judah, gets pregnant by him, and then does the big reveal in which it turns out that he was the father. And so ensures that the family line continues in this really quite twisted and sordid way. She gives birth um, as a result. Then there's Rahab, the second woman that he mentions. Rahab was a foreigner living in the city of Jericho before the Israelites had conquered the city. And uh, she'd heard rumors of these Israelites, and so she was afraid of them. And she betrays her own people by sort of um, moving to the other side, as it were. And she's also a prostitute. She is um, a woman of the city. And the result is she ends up being in this messianic line, Tamar Rahab. Then we move to this third woman, Ruth. Ruth is known as a Moabite or a Moabitess. She descends from a man called Moab. Moab was the result, a man who was born out of incest again. A daughter was afraid that she wouldn't end up with a husband and wouldn't be able to have a child. So what does she do? She gets her father drunk, sleeps with him, gets pregnant, and gives birth to this guy Moab. Moab becomes an entire nation. He has a, a lot of descendants. And the Moabites become sworn enemies of the Israelites. So much so that it's actually written in the law that no Moabite could come to the temple unless it was the 10th generation of converts. In other words, they'd been converted to Judaism for two or 300 years. Then they would, the bloodline would be diluted enough that a Moabite could go to the temple. And here we have Ruth. She's part of the line. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Then he comes to the fourth one. Doesn't even name her. The wife of Uriah. 
She's a famous woman in the Bible. Her name's Bathsheba. She appears in one of the stories in the later part of King David's life when he's, all, the, all his generals are off at war and he's just lounging about the palace one day and he glances across the flat roofs of Jerusalem and spies a woman completely in the buff having a bath on the roof. I don't know if that was normal then. <laughs> I have no idea. Can't comment on that. But happy Christmas, David. He, uh, he invites her back. They end up sleeping together. She gets pregnant. So what does he do to cover it up? He, uh, he arranges for her husband, Uriah, to be put on the front lines of battle so that he won't survive. And he, sure enough, he dies. So then David marries this Bathsheba, and she later gives birth to a son called Solomon, who is the next in line to the throne. And so the family line continues. It ends up with this fifth girl, Mary. Mary is obviously a more innocent character, but... She is nevertheless pregnant as a teenager by the Holy Spirit, she claims, which is so unbelievable even to her fiancé, Joseph, that he tries to leave her and abandon her. And it takes an angel to appear to him and tell him not to do it. You see scandal all through this line. And in this last one, of course, I'm sure that it hung over Jesus for the entirety of, life, of his life, the question of his legitimacy, the question of whether he was he was, she, he was conceived out of wedlock, which, of course, he was. Now, this is the question I'm asking you. Why, if you're trying to write a gospel to persuade people about the nature of this man, Jesus, why would you, why would you draw attention to these things? I, it, all it does is call into question the legitimacy of Jesus, the purity of his bloodline. And I think the answer is something like this. That you can only understand Christmas when you come to grips with the scandalous aspects of what happens in the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you a few aspects of this. Here's the first. I think you can only understand the birth of Jesus, the event that we call Christmas, when you understand the scandal of sin itself. Now this is a risky place for me to start, I grant you. Here we are at carol service, and I'm talking to you about sin. And there's a sense in which that makes me feel awkward. I'm sure it makes you feel awkward. We're all a little bit offended by the subject. And of course, you know, Christmas is supposed to be that time of year when it's all about happiness and schmaltz, and some of that happiness is genuine, right? And so we feel this discordant thing that we're talking here about. Amidst all the glitz and the beauty, we're talking about this ugliness, We're talking about the ugliness of the mess of these people's lives and, of course, of the backdrop of sin into which Jesus was born. And it feels like one of those awful moments at a wedding when the the, the slightly tipsy best man stands up and says things which you can never unhear for the rest of your life and just pass a, a horrible feeling on the whole day. But listen, that's the entire point. When Matthew wrote his gospel... His readers knew all of these women, certainly the first four. They knew their stories. So when he mentions them, it's not an accident. It's very deliberate. Now to surprise you, I mean, we're in the midst of a general election cycle at the moment in which there are two men doing their very best to hide the scandals of their pasts. On the one hand, we've got a man who's been a known associate of terrorists for decades 
now trying to avoid every question on the subject. On the other hand, we have a man who has an unknown number of children from an unknown number of relationships, and he won't admit it. And you think, how did we come to this situation? It's really quite ridiculous when you look at it on the surface of things, isn't it? And of course, the only way we get there is by constantly trying to obliterate the past, bury the past, not talk about the past. And Matthew does the very opposite. He brings it all up right at the start of his gospel. And I think the reason is this. The only way you can make sense of the arrival of Jesus is if you make sense of the problem that he came to solve. When you understand the scandal of humanity and of our sin, of the wretchedness of our lives. Some of the Old Testament prophecies that spoke and predicted the coming of Jesus speak very directly about this particular issue and what he would come to do. In Isaiah 9, for example, which is often you will have heard at carol services, it says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, his kingdom will keep expanding. For what purpose? It says, it says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is going to rule, and the reason he's going to rule is to bring about justice and righteousness on the earth. You can't understand the arrival of Jesus until you come to grips with the problem that he came to solve. Now, listen, this has to come home to you personally. Some of you know Jesus personally. You're a follower of Jesus. Many of you, I'm sure, are not. How can Jesus be more relevant to you? How can he appear more relevant to you? And I say it's not, it won't be through the admiration of his teachings. They're, they're wonderful, but I don't think that's really the way in. It won't really be through the, uh, the inspiration of his lifestyle. And he was an extraordinary man. You read the life stories, you recognize that he was an amazing man. It will not be through me recounting to you a genealogy. I'm pretty convinced that that doesn't rock anyone's world this evening. But what it will be, what, what, what does cause us to have an interest in and want to, to understand Jesus better is when we come to face to face with the problem of the enormity and the deadly seriousness of our own sin and wretchedness. I know this in my own life. I'm sure it came through to you in the stories that we were just listening to. You can only make sense of the scandal of Christmas when you understand the scandal of our sin, of the problem that he came to solve. Here's a second thing. I think you can only understand Jesus' birth if you understand the scandal of his love for sinners. I want you to think about Matthew for a second. What was it that motivated Matthew particularly? Because none of the other gospel writers do this. What was it that motivated him to write this account of these various, to mention all these people? I think many today would give it, would, would give it an unhelpful sheen. They'd say, listen, this is one of the examples of a patriarchal system, a man just doing this, what we would call slut-shaming today, just mentioning all these women and their mistakes just for the, the sake of it or because of some kind of power element or something like that. And I say that's absolutely wrong. For one thing, I could have told you the men in the genealogy, many of them were much worse. But for another thing, I think the reason Matthew mentions these women, the reason why he calls attention to them, is because he felt that they were his people. He felt a particular connection with their stories. And you can only understand that if you understand Matthew himself. 
Matthew's first encounter with Jesus doesn't happen until the ninth chapter of his gospel. But let me tell you a bit of who he was. He'd been brought up a Jewish boy. And like every Jewish boy at the time, he would have been brought up to love the Jews and to hate their oppressors, the Romans. But at some point in his story, the love of money had corrupted his heart so that he became engaged professionally in a government-sanctioned financial fraud scheme in which, as a tax collector, he was, he was, he was given the okay to not only collect taxes but to to get more out of people, to extort people, so, and then keep skim the top, the rest off for himself. Can you imagine how hated a figure he was in his own community among his own people? That he was robbing the Jews and giving money to the Romans. In the 19, early late 30s, 1940s, when the, the Nazis just ran over Europe. They very quickly conquered France. And they began to establish their people in towns and villages all across the nation. And Nazi rule across the whole nation. And some of the French, many of the French were resistant to this in hidden or visible ways. But some of them saw in this an opportunity. They saw an opportunity to be ingratiated with the new power. And in so doing, find wealth or find some opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise had. If you were an ordinary Frenchman at the time, you would have despised those turncoat friends of yours. And Matthew was that kind of man. He was despised because what he did was despicable. Then one day, Jesus walks past his booth where he collects taxes. And he just says two words, follow me. They're pregnant words because all through the Gospels, when he invites people to follow him, he's saying it's much more than just, hey, walk behind me. It's let your life be changed by me. That evening, they have this dinner um, in which it seems that all Matthew's mates turn up because it is a very questionable crowd that's having dinner with Jesus that evening, so much so that it draws comments from some of the religious teachers, the Pharisees. They come along and they, they ask this question. They say, why does... Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, people with reputations, people who we hate, people who we despise. And Jesus answers it in this way. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Friends, I think you can begin to see why Matthew wrote as he did. He looked at the genealogy of Jesus and he marveled at the plan of God that despite the scandal of our sin, God moved towards us in love. He moved towards us in love by the birth of Jesus himself. And then Christ lived a life in which he moved towards people like Matthew. And, you know, one of the insults that you hear about Jesus in the Gospels is people call him a friend of sinners. It was a phrase designed to tarnish him. But it's actually one of the greatest compliments that Jesus was ever paid. It's it's the reason why Christians all the, the world over feel drawn to him, why we love him. Because we recognize in ourselves a brokenness and a flawed 
reality to our nature, our hearts, things that make us ashamed, things that make us want to hide, aspects of who we are that we say are wretched, and yet we say, Jesus loves me. And it means that there's two kinds of people in the room tonight. That on the one hand, there are those of you who would look at your life and say, that's not me, my life is okay. And the sad thing is that there were people at the time of Jesus who felt the same way, and Jesus walked straight past them. That's what he means here when he says that the healthy don't need a doctor. He doesn't mean that you are healthy. He means that you think you're healthy. The other hand, there are those of you who recognize when you hear about the stories of the women or when you hear about Matthew or when you just understand the power of shame and of guilt and the sense, of, as Edward described it, of the light switching on and feeling that your life is ugly when it's exposed to the light. Jesus moves towards such people. Let me tell you a final thing. You have to understand the scandal of sin, the scandal of his love for sinners. And here's the last thing. You have to understand the scandal of his redeeming grace. Now, what is grace? It's the name of our church. It's not a commonly understood word, actually. What it means is simply this. Grace is the reception of a gift that you do not deserve. And grace in and of itself is often a scandalous thing. Let me give you an illustration to describe what I'm talking about. It's Christmas bonus season for some, some of you. I don't know if any, many of you receive Christmas bonuses, but perhaps you do. And you know, my Christmas, I'm a pastor. My Christmas bonus is having you guys here tonight. Thank you for coming. But imagine, imagine, your, boss, um, imagine your boss at work asks for reports on all the staff in the company and uh, collects all these reports performance-based reports based on, you know, sales targets or, or, or productivity or whatever it is that's measured and ends up with a stack of them on his desk. And then he pulls out a piece of paper in which all the names of the employees are listed and there's a box next to each name in which he is to write the figure, the bonus figure that each of those employees are to receive. Imagine if that boss swept aside the entire stack of reports and in every box next to every name writes the same figure, a very generous sum, far more than anyone in the company was expecting to receive. Not only that, but pulls out his checkbook and writes two checks for a couple of employees who were fired that year for gross misconduct. When the news reaches you, how do you feel at that moment? Are you delighted that you received a bonus that far exceeded your expectations, or are you angry? Jesus told stories that illustrated this this exact reaction in our hearts. I don't think it's particularly difficult to believe that many of us would feel annoyed in that situation. You might go to the boss and say, what have you done? But why did you do this? It's not fair. And don't you realize that by... By treating all your employees like this, all you're doing is demotivating us from working hard the next year because we all just got the same thing anyway. There's no, there's no distinction. And the boss might reply to you, the reason why I'm giving my employees this is because I love them. And you didn't deserve what you're getting anyway. So what have you got to complain about? It was always a gift. It was always grace to get this in the first place. Now, when you understand that, that's when you begin to understand Christianity. 
This is not well perceived by people on the outside of the Christian church looking in. It's often understood that what we are about is a system in which the good attain more and the bad lose out. But actually, that is exactly the opposite of how this grace thing works. What Matthew had had experienced was this unbelievable generosity of God to him in giving him what he did not deserve. Think about the privilege that Matthew experienced that day. Jesus could have walked the streets of any of the cities and towns of Israel and chosen any number of better qualified people. Young guys who'd been training themselves in the, in the law of God, who were devout, who were religious. And what does Jesus do? He ignores all of them and chooses this, this really quite wretched man in his tax booth. And what happens to Matthew's life as a result of this enormous privilege? He becomes one of the 12 apostles who changed the world. What happens to his life? Do you think he stayed the way he was? Do you think that he, he, he went back to his tax collecting after Jesus had died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven? Do you think he did that? The answer is, of course not. His life was absolutely transformed by the experience of this grace of this generosity that he did not deserve. And this is what I mean when I talk to you about the scandal of redeeming grace. God is generous to us when we don't deserve it, and it transforms our lives. The women in the account had all experienced that in some measure and ended up being part of this messianic line. Matthew had experienced it. This is why, for those of you you are Christian tonight, I know that you resonate with what I'm saying, but you say, this is why I love Jesus. This is why he means so much to me. God, we understand, could have just discarded the world. We don't deserve his kindness. We don't deserve his love. And yet, he reaches down. He gives us a savior. He gives us Jesus. Jesus takes our sin upon himself. When he goes to the cross 30 years, 33 years later. And I think, friends, what I'm trying to help you see is that when Matthew's drawing attention to all this mess in Jesus' own birth line, in his own ancestry, what he's showing you is that this is how God loves to work. He brings life out of brokenness, he loves to redeem. He did it in all the women's lives. He did it in Matthew's life. And friend, my encouragement to you is that Jesus wants to do it in your life also. If, if any of you want to talk to me about that at the end, if you feel that there's anything in, in this that, that raises questions or that you want clarification or you want to pray with me, I'd be delighted to do that. But friends, I just want to close with a prayer. Father, we thank you that you in your grace have loved us when we did not deserve it and touched our lives. I pray for those here, Lord God, who are perhaps just awakened or intrigued by the love of Jesus, moving their hearts to understand your scandalous grace, your scandalous love, and your desire to change us. Amen.